Hello and welcome to Here Are the Nominees, a podcast all about Oscar-nominated movies uh, presented by the media by us. I am Brent, here as usual with David. Hello. David, how are you? Hello. I came in too early. Hello. <laughs> we, have to, we have to start all over. <laughs> Episode one, Die Hard. You've ruined it. We have to have a perfect, a perfect run. <laughs> um, uh no, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. If this is a, this is our third episode, this is uh, where where we talk about a randomly selected Oscar nominated movie, and uh, this time I chose a movie that neither one of us had seen: 1940s The Thief of Baghdad. So uh, we always start off with um, the the kind of the easy starting question, which is: uh, Did you have any really? Uh, neither one of us had seen it. Did you have really any knowledge of this movie? And um, just follow that up with whether what you thought about it. Um, yeah, the knowledge I had of it is I'm I'm a big fan of what I've seen from the Archers. That's Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, British uh, filmmaking team. Made a lot of movies in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, I basically just know it as kind of a curiosity in their career. This mostly make movies about Britishness. Like life and death, the Colonel Blimp, um, uh, a matter of life and death, a lot of life and death there, <clears throat> um, and the Red Shoes is, is is a classic, and then there is this Arabian, you know, thousand and one Arabian Tales, um, Shahrazad inspired thing that happened in nineteen forty. All of a sudden, so I basically noted as a kind of a uh, there's nothing they really make the that uh, Powell made that's really like it to my knowledge, and nothing that really is like it afterwards. So I knew about it like that. And I knew it was known for special effects at the time. Um, how about you? What was your knowledge of TTOB? I actually, so I, I think I was really only familiar with the, and, and I say familiar. I think I was only aware of the 1924 version because in my mind, the thief of Baghdad was an old silent film. And I was, unaware that it had even come out in the the age of the academy awards so i was surprised to see it pop up on the list Mm -hmm. um very surprised that it was a a, you know a a technicolor film uh, because even though you had just come off a year where really two of the the the, probably the two biggest films from 1939 wizard of oz and gone with the wind were both in color uh Despite that, this still wasn't really an era where where color was common. So um, mm-hmm. I was ex- excited to see kind of another early color film because they just have their own kind of look to them, which I'm sure we'll talk about more later. I, I did want to ask you, though. Uh, so I have very limited um, exposure to the archers. So I've seen Black Narcissus, which I, uh, I loved and I mm-hmm. thought it was great. But that's all I've seen of theirs. This is just Powell. There's no Pressburger here. Is this before they hooked up kind of to start making movies together, or is this a departure for Powell? Do you know? I think it's a departure for them. I think they were a team before this. Um, They made a lot of propaganda movies leading into the war. They made a lot of uh, films that incorporated actual, like, World War II footage and, and some kind of quick movies. I think uh, they called them uh, in the Wikipedia article quota movies where they had a quota for their studio and they would just kind of churn out these movies. And uh, from what I read, this is more pal was brought on as kind of a director for hire in kind of a long list of directors that passed through this thing. 
Um, it may be more of a uh, Alexander Korda production or um, mm-hmm. Brainchild. He's he's a famous. I don't know that much about him, but I know he he uh, produced some of the Powell stuff. He's a famous English uh, producer, kind of like a, a Selznick type, at basically at the same time. So he had a, kind of a studio of directors that he worked with. And uh, Powell took a shot at this one that kind of passed among hands, which is why it's kind of seems a little a little out of left field for their part Archer's partnership. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does feel like uh, Corda's film because even in the opening credits, uh, you know, typically opening credits end with the director. Uh, that's the last card. It's directed by Alfred Hitchcock, directed by whoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one ends with produced by uh corda and it's uh I, I feel like that's him just putting his stamp like this is my movie and uh which you know was more common in those days for producers to it's sort of like uh selznick with with gone with the wind i think yeah he's got the big title card with like the everything kind of cursive yeah the, it's the you're welcome card <laughs> <laughs> um okay well so did you like the thief of baghdad um so i watched it uh uh, just a little kind of a little bit ago a, a little longer than usual from when we record these things when i initially saw it i i was kind of okay on it and the the more distance i get from it i kind of appreciated it a bit more i think if i were uh rating it now versus when i first saw it i'd probably bump it up a half star or so <clears throat> um it's a really it's a it's a fun adventure that's not all that deep but I think if you're really trying to plumb some thematic stuff and some of the stuff that was ahead of its time visually and thematically, like uh, we like to do, um, I kind of uh, appreciated it a bit more. Um, I think definitely influential to the types of like adventure movies that the directors we love growing up probably grew up loving. You know, one of the kind of yeah. two degrees of separation from the true inspiration for some of that stuff. How about I think uh, that's, just wondering? How about uh, you? What are your thoughts on? Yeah, I think that's what I enjoyed most about it. So I, I liked the movie. I thought that it has, um, it definitely has some stretches that I was just sort of it was th- that were trying my patience a little bit. That were sort of had me kind of eyeing my phone out of the you know while I'm finding distractions around the room. Mm-hmm. And then there were other scenes where I was just gripped and kind of just like sort of in amazement that this was on film in 1940 and really mm-hmm. impressed and really having a lot of fun. Um, so it's kind of a, an up and down movie for me, but one that I generally really did appreciate because I, I, I see it. Um, I, I really could see how it is an ancestor of a lot of movies that I like even more and a lot of movies that I'm, that I'm really fond of. You can see the kind of the, the lineage there as you're watching this movie, you can spot like little scenes and little things and little decisions and say, Hey, that's, that's just like this other movie from 40 years later or 50 years later. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was, it's kind of a fun game to play with the thief of Baghdad is saying like, Oh, this, you know, you can, I wonder if this movie from 1995 was, you know, influenced by this in any way. 
um, yeah, it, it kinda, was fun. Kind of reminds me of watching Metropolis a little bit. Of it's yeah. uh, it's something that I kind of appreciate in hindsight, and you can see a lot of the inspiration. But when I, I was in the middle of it, it doesn't. I mean, it did not feel like a such a masterpiece or anything. I guess Metropolis yeah. is probably held up to a much higher standard than this one is historically. But yeah, I kind of had that same kind of <laughs> feeling that this is something to be appreciated. Yeah, and and even. Even for what it is, I think it's a good movie. It never really got to that next level for me, though. That like is this this is a masterpiece. I mean, of the three movies we've watched so far for this podcast, this is by far the worst movie of the three. I think. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I'd agree. So we're we're going to see much worse than this, I would imagine, though, over the course of the podcast. But uh, um, what did you what did you like best about the Thief of Baghdad? Um, And and also, what did you like least? Uh, the thing I like the most is, uh, not to steal a future part of the podcast, but I loved the character of Abu and I love the actor Sabu that plays him and prepare uh, for me <clears throat> to get those mixed up constantly. <laughs> um, I think, uh, he's, he just brings such a, like, uh, immediate physicality to it where he's, He's doing all of his stunt work, climbing all over the boats and, you know, jumping through the water and going through the spider's web. And it's just it's super convincing in a movie that really needs you to kind of be convinced because it's pretty, pretty out there and uh, needing you to suspend some disbelief because great special effects for the time. But probably even at the time you had to kind of go along with it. And I also Mm -hmm. uh, really enjoyed the arc of his character, which was pretty surprising given that uh, we have a white actor playing a Arabian prince and he's kind of the main, main hero. And uh, um, I almost did it again. Abu, there you go. Abu is the kind of the side character who is kind of in a servile role to this white um, kind of brown face royal. (laughs) It's all kinds, all shades of problematic. But uh, love the uh, end of it when, um, not to spoil it, I hope you guys have seen this by now, but when (laughs) Ahmed says, you know, you're, uh, it's all because of you, Abu, you know, you're the real hero here. And then he presumably flies off into his own adventure. I thought that was a great um, reversal of that, uh, not to get too deep, but of that kind of master servant role where he's kind of the, uh, he's kind of the master of this story. That was definitely my favorite part. Yeah, I, I really liked. Um, I think my favorite part, which we'll get to, obviously in the in the plot, is um, when uh, Abu goes on his sort of uh, his own little personal adventure uh, later in the in basically the second half of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably I like it best because it eliminates the thing I like the least, which is Ahmad. Yeah, <laughs> from from the. He just disappears for like forty minutes of this movie. He just he's just off like just hanging out somewhere, and I don't know where he is. And I was completely fine with it because Abu uh, is is so much more fun, and he's just uh, he's uh, that's when the movie really comes to life for me. I, I was sort of wavering on the movie until the second half when when it becomes more Abu focused, and that's when I became a fan. Yeah, Ahmed is kind of waylaid on an island, and Abu is, uh, 
he's he, you could tell what he wants to do is have fun and have an adventure and you can kind of see it in his eyes that even though he's kind of in danger he's he's having fun which makes us kind of have fun rather than this pretty rote very banal romance that we're supposed to buy between these two characters who have no chemistry <laughs> with Ahmed and the unnamed princess I couldn't tell you the first thing about the princess. It's been a couple weeks since I've seen this, and I don't. I remember nothing about her other than Ahmed just loving her, and that's it. Mm-hmm. it does she have any kind of real personality in this movie? Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> other than being incredibly naive, and uh, yeah, I guess that's pretty much it. <laughs> really being open to love. Well, let's run through the plot, and uh, as usual, I'll read quickly from Wikipedia and take uh, breaks when Wikipedia takes breaks. So, uh, Ahmad, the young, naive sultan of Baghdad, is convinced by his evil grand vizier, Jafar, to go out into the city disguised as a poor man to get to know his subjects in the manner of his grandfather, Harun al-Rashid. Jafar then has Ahmad thrown into a dungeon where he meets the young thief, Abu, who arranges their escape. They flee to Basra, where Ahmad meets and falls in love with the princess, as played by June Dupre, or Duprez. Uh, Jafar journeys to Basra, for he too desires the princess. Her father, the toy-obsessed sultan, is fascinated by the magical, mechanical flying horse that Jafar, a skilled sorcerer, offers. He agrees to the proposed marriage. Upon hearing this, the princess, now deeply in love with Ahmad, runs away. Confronted by Ahmad, Jafar magically blinds him and turns Abu into a dog. The spell can only be broken if Jafar holds the princess in his arms. So, uh, yeah, what do you think about the, the beginning of this uh, of this movie? Um, <clears throat> it's just uh, it's fascinating history for this movie is that it was originally going to be a musical, and you can kind of tell it. <laughs> at some points of the movie it starts out with like the 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 scale of like the hustle and bustle of, of a port it's either a huge sound stage or it's a pretty impressive set and the uh, the fishermen like saying that the sea is the sea <laughs> it's like, what is what movie did i start <laughs> um but uh it's you started aladdin is what you started i mean <laughs> you know when we read when i i read uh, about this movie and it said the, you know, Disney borrowed some elements from this for Aladdin. And I was thinking, okay, so they borrowed some character names and some gen- general plot points. And then the movie starts with the guy singing about where it's located. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this feels a lot like Aladdin already right out of the gate. There are so many. And then the Sultan is obsessed with toys and... Yeah, Abu's friends. whole intro is where he's like, you know, you steal something and he's kind of running through the city over like the acrobatic displays of escaping it's like, man yes. this is he was very close <laughs> yeah it's i think borrows some elements is uh is very forgiving to, to disney in this uh in this case i've always heard so much about uh the lion king and what it stole from other films and uh, stories and i'd never really heard that much about aladdin and uh, i feel like aladdin kind of needs to Needs to, uh, you know, be put under a, a microscope too. Yeah, he needs to but take it's... its licks like Aladdin did. <laughs> yeah, um, it... yeah. So I, I did, I did remember. Uh, so it, this starts off as a flashback. Uh, it starts off inexplicably to me <laughs> as a flashback, as the already blinded Ahmad telling his story 
um, to uh, to some some what pedestrians, uh, people passing by. Who, who's he telling that to? Uh, it's mainly um, he's in the street to begin with, and there's the person who tries to give him a fake coin. But I think he tells most of his story to he's taken in by the girls in the palace. He's kind of yes. in that little um, like sitting area with. You know, it's, it's actually very beautifully framed, that kind of lattice work in the background, the kind of Arabian architecture. But he's telling them the story and they're basically like, oh, my gosh, you're in, you're in the castle. <laughs> like, you could pretty much do this. <laughs> uh, I did I did write down one of the quotes from them, which is stay with us. Our doctors can cure your blindness. And I was amazed by the proficiency of their doctors uh, in in this area, because uh, that's I, I didn't know that was uh you know, possible thing in medicine in the era in which this is set. But yeah. um, if it sounds too good to be true, it might be too. <laughs> I also like I just uh, the, the the kind of rich man who pays some uh, the, some charity to his beggar character. Uh, so many great um, like epithets for the dog for how great the dog is at, at telling bad coins from good coins. Uh, the one I wrote down was this frequenter of tree trunks. <laughs> they're, they're just having fun <laughs> a little bit in the beginning <laughs> yeah is it uh, i didn't write down the context and like i said it's been it's been a bit since we've seen this um is this is this opening chase for abu is this where he hides in a basket yes yeah. okay and, and that obviously to me strikes up memories of raiders of the lost ark where uh, marion tries to hide in a basket during a chase that's also kind of it's set it, that's taken place i think in cairo so this is uh, i think that's an intentional nod to this movie of which I, I jotted down a few others but um but yeah this is the first case where i, I thought hey uh, one of my favorite movies borrows a little bit from this mm-hmm. um so uh, I also like in this first section, we got the introduction of the Grand Vizier Jafar. We haven't really talked about him so far. I guess we just started, but um, yeah. I think they do do a pretty great job of uh, with that character of making him such a, uh, I don't know, fun, I guess, kind of fun, menacing, mustache twirling villain. Yeah. He really, uh, Conrad Vate plays him. Um, mm mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but he, he really makes a meal of, of Jafar and takes all the silliness very seriously. And I was kind of impressed with, with him and his introduction. So Conrad Vate is a name that I am familiar with. I don't know a lot about him as an actor, but I, it is a name I recognize. And I saw that he was top billed in this movie and then it starts I'm watching it. I don't know enough about him where I could recognize Conrad Vade. Mm-hmm. So as I'm watching it, I just assume since he's top build, he's he's Ahmed and I'm, or Ahmad, and I'm thinking hey, this guy's not that good. <laughs> Conrad Vade. I don't know why he's so famous. The real star to me is Jafar, yeah. and then of course I check the cast, and it turns out, oh yeah, the good actor that I've heard of is Jafar, and um, I don't think John Justin is uh, has quite the same. Uh, legacy but um yeah but yeah I, I completely agree jafar is is a is a very fun villain which is um as fun as abu is you also abu can't carry the film on his own and so it is it is very nice to have a uh, a compelling villain since you don't really have that compelling of a of a hero 
Mm-hmm. Uh, a formidable foil, at least, for these these characters that we... Uh, well, I guess character that we like. I'm, I'll just stretch it that far. <laughs> uh, I think this is also the section where Abu pickpockets someone. And I, I really appreciate it because, to me, it's one of the most realistic pickpockets I've ever seen on film. He's kind of obvious. He distracts the person, but he's he is obviously pickpocketing him. I feel like in modern movies... And granted, I've never been a pickpocket, and I've never been pickpocketed that I know of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, but I feel like modern movies have this like almost magical uh, ability for pickpockets, where they all they have to do is just like just slightly bump into someone, and they've stolen everything on their on their person. And I, it it like I always question physically whether it's even possible. And like like somebody's like reaching deep inside their jacket coat, their jacket pocket, and they're like, wait this guy stole my, my big wallet or whatever that I had in here. And he stole my phone. And I'm like, how, how did he do that? The guy, he, he, he literally just bumped shoulders with you. You made contact for a half second. And I always basically want to, want to call BS on, on all modern movies with <laughs> magical pickpockets. Whereas, uh, Abu here is like stumbles into the guy. He's clearly reaching around him. You can see that his arm is, is stealing something from him. Mm-hmm. And it's I'm like, thank you. Thank you misdirection i'll buy uh but he's he's uh he's more obvious about it so i appreciated that and as a lifelong pickpocket myself i also appreciate (laughs) it (laughs) um i I do have a question here this is this is uh jafar is a proto bond villain i think because uh instead of just killing the 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 people who are the biggest obstacles to him he blinds them and turns them into a dog uh Two curses that conveniently will be broken as at the very moment he gets the one thing he wants. So yeah, it doesn't seem like a very well thought through plan because at that point he's back to full strength and he still is into like the object of Jafar's affection. So you still kind of have to deal with him, and right. you've made him mad by blinding him, even <laughs> temporarily. Right. Yeah. He's a powerful sorcerer who who's more interested in showing off his his sorcery than he is in helping himself. Uh, like I said, he, he's much more interested in aiming a, a laser beam at his uh, a slow moving death laser at his uh, at his opposition <laughs> than he is in actually dealing with them in an efficient manner. Maybe he's just like but a other... moderate and temperate wizard. It's like I want this one thing, this girl. You're blind until I get her, and then you know you do your own thing, buddy. Yeah, you don't have to be blind for life. Uh, okay, moving on. The well, princess is. I do oh, like uh, um, this. This comes up a lot. Uh, same with uh, Abu with the picking the pocket. I I really enjoy how the movie continually displays his uh, his cleverness, overcoming strength, and overcoming his obstacles. Um, his his little con with the pancakes and the honey is really is really pretty funny. Of, uh, you know, this isn't that good a honey. And I guess the pancakes, they probably, uh, I forget, the pancakes they steal and the honey they kind of con this guy out of. Uh, <clears throat> all right. The princess is captured and sold in the slave market. She is bought secretly by Jafar, but falls into a deep sleep from which he cannot rouse her. 
Ahmad is tricked by Jafar's servant Halima into awakening the princess. Halima then lures her onto Jafar's ship by telling her that there is a doctor on board who can cure Ahmad's blindness. Jafar informs the princess about the spell, so she allows herself to be embraced. Ahmad's sight is instantly restored, and Abu returned to human form. They pursue in a small boat, but Jafar conjures up a storm that shipwrecks them. The princess persuades Jafar to return her to Basra. She tearfully implores her father not to force her into the marriage. Furious when the sultan agrees, Jafar presents him with another mechanical toy. The silver maid, a many-armed dancing statue which stabs the the sultan to death. He then sets sail for Baghdad with the princess. Okay, first off, when they're on the boat, I just have to say, when they're on the boat, the sight of them just throwing a dog overboard on this boat was very jarring to me. And there was a moment where this movie's just been kind of whimsical and fun, and I understand that it's Abu, but still, they just tossed this poor little puppy overboard, and it looked, uh, I don't know, it looked looked pretty legitimate to me, and it was... uh, I'm not. I'm not even like that strong of a dog person. I like dogs, but I don't. I don't own a dog. I never have. And uh, it, still, I had a moment where I was like, "Oh, poor puppy." <laughs> so, David, being a dog person, how did you have? How did you handle that scene? It was pretty rough, but you got to consider the context here. <laughs> a dog on a ship is not going to really help with the sails or anything. They're just going to eat food, and they're not going to eat rats. So, That's I true. unless it's a uh, terrier, and those those do eat rats and. Sadly, uh, Abu was not a terrier. No, right. yeah, it's 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 uh, like a lot of things in this movie. It's a little visually jarring. <laughs> um, well, then we have the the storm scene, which actually it reminded me visually of a specific scene from a '90s movie, and uh, that movie is The Truman Show, hmm. and Jafar conjuring up the storm to try to derail Ahmad and Ahmad just sort of braving through it. And he's, he's battered by the storm. I, f- I, I noticed the, I noticed a similarity between that and Truman's ultimate, uh, you know, making it to the, uh, the, the end of his, uh, his dome in, in the Truman show, mm-hmm. the same, it had kind of a similar blue sky with white clouds as in this movie, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was, I thought was pretty cool. Um, sure. But, uh, but I did yeah. not make that connection while I was watching it. <laughs> yeah, but it, it was uh, um, it was decent effects. Yeah. So, what did you think? Okay, so uh, first off, we, we kind of skipped over this earlier because uh, how'd you like the magical mechanical flying horse that the Sultan is obsessed with? <laughs> oh yeah, it's showing the, uh, that that's a good bit, bit good bit of business there. <laughs> Did you know they used a real horse? <laughs> Could you tell? <laughs> um, with the I like the the key in it and uh, yeah, um, they exchange the the horse for the daughter and the 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 sultan doesn't really think about it that long. <laughs> nope, he is happy to make that deal. Maybe a little bit of pressure, like uh, this deal leaves when I do. Um, <laughs> but uh, it makes a deal pretty pretty easily. Um, I don't know. Would you? Uh, I probably wouldn't do the same trade, mechanical flying horse for my daughter. But you know, I'm not a old man. You know, they say old men are like children. So maybe when I'm an old man, I'll understand it more. Well, having had twins, I would still have a daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
one, I would have, one's put you in a leveraged position there where you can <laughs> i would ha- i would still have a daughter and a flying horse yeah so i would i would uh i don't know that thing is uh does not look very stable and it turns out it's not as we find out at the end of the movie um so what did you then think about the uh the silver maid yeah the silver maid um Again, it's a little convoluted, kind of like Jafar's uh, curse yes. restrictions. Is I was just thinking that. The, yes. the entire purpose of the Silver Maid is to <laughs> lure the Sultan in and then stab him. and uh, Which happens, lures the Sultan in and he gets stabbed by the Silver Maid. And Jafar essentially just uh, says, okay, all the guards who have just watched all of this happen, get ready for Baghdad. It's like... <laughs> You could have probably just, you know, just choked him out and say, guards, come with me. And uh, it yeah. seemed, uh, yeah, it, it was something visually fun, but it didn't really serve. It didn't really sell it as having much of a purpose, especially because the guards are right there and kind of watching it happen. And I, I don't know. What did you think of the, the Silver Maid? Um, visually fun with no purpose is pretty much the first half of this movie. <laughs> That's true. So, like, there's that is a frequent uh, a frequent thing you can say about this movie. Um, I, I think that's another reason why I like the the, the second half because it, it remains visually fun, but it seems to suddenly have more of a purpose. The uh, <laughs> the, the the visuals, but yeah, uh, yet another Bond villain contraption from Jafar. Uh, that 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 works, but a um, yeah, real li- shark with lasers on its head kind of vibe to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This this movie also has. I think it kind of dabbles in a lot of different uh, legends and and tales from. Uh, uh, would that be Arabian culture? Is it, would would this be linked to like a thousand and one mm-hmm. Arabian Nights? Yeah. <clears throat> um, and uh, I think. While they're in Basra, also I noticed that uh, I don't know if someone s- makes mention of it in the movie or if I just connected it to Basra being the the port that um, uh, Sinbad the sailor uh, is is always connected to, mm-hmm. and um, I think maybe there is a, a mention of Sinbad in the movie, uh, even though they don't uh, actually run into him at some point. But I, I like that that this is just sort of a movie that's like we are we are throwing everything into this and just sort of. This all exists in this one kind of universe. Uh, I thought it was pretty fun. Yeah, and the Silver Maid kind of really gave gave off to me like a Hindu inspired, multi armed mm-hmm. kind of Vishnu like uh, like purpose for for no other purpose than I think it, they thought it would probably be fun to have multiple dancers behind them doing like all the arms and stuff. <laughs> um, what do you think of? Uh, uh, just going a little bit earlier, the uh, when they're on the boat, Jafar and the princess. He basically tells her, kind of real male toxic wizardry here, of, you know, I could use my powers to make you love me, do whatever you want, but I want something more. <laughs> it's kind of... Yeah, boy, that's uh, that's icky. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty icky, and we'll, we'll touch on it later, but it gets it gets ickier. He, he doesn't uh, keep towing this line of uh, gentlemanness. Yeah, it's it's kind of like when, um, yeah, I mean when you when you take the gentlemanly route 
by talking about all the ungentlemanly things you have the power to do, uh, it's not really the gentlemanly route anymore. Yeah, that that's a, that is a threat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's something that you are going to betray later, and uh, yeah, it, and it's kind of just it's 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 plotty there, right? It's it's the only reason it's there is so more plot can happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. It makes him a. I mean, it, it keeps him our good villain here. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I also do like that the the spell to conjure the wind is just yelling wind three times, Beetlejuice style. <laughs> and he I, I was... and he didn't earlier say blindness, blindness, blindness. When uh, had I seen this movie before I read Patrick Rothfuss's uh, The Name of the Wind, I would have been waiting throughout that entire novel for uh, uh, quoth to uh to call the wind by just yelling wind <laughs> and i would have laughed really hard if that was the mysterious way you called the wind yeah uh, it's like a cheat, cheat code like that's like it. <laughs> um okay uh <clears throat> moving on you ready yeah uh abu this is where the movie starts to get good for me yeah uh, abu awakes alone on a deserted beach and finds a bottle when he opens it, an enormous genie appears and rewards the boy with three wishes. Abu wastes his first wish by wishing for sausages like his mother used to make. When he attempts to use his second wish to ask where Ahmad is, the genie cannot grant this, but instead flies him to the top of the highest mountain in the world, where he steals a large jewel, the all-seeing eye, which can show where Ahmad is. Then, for his second wish, the genie reunites Abu with Ahmad. When Ahmad asks to see the princess... Abu has him gaze into the all-seeing eye. There he sees Jafar arranging for the princess to inhale the fragrance of the blue rose of forgetfulness, which makes her forget her love. In agony, Ahmad lashes out at Abu. During the ensuing argument, Abu unthinkingly wishes Ahmad to Baghdad. The genie, freed after granting the last wish, abandons Abu in the wilderness. So, this is the genie section, and... uh, Boy, that's fun, and boy, that actor is having a blast playing this genie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the the genie in flight made me laugh several times. It is it is impressive. So Abu just sort of latches on to his ponytail, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, that's how he rides along when the genie is in flight. And the effects of this, I believe, were achieved by tying a small like. Um, uh, I don't know if it was some sort of toy or something to uh, this actor's hair, but you can see it flopping around as he's flying, and it just looks like a little action figure mm-hmm. in, that they've used to uh, represent Abu riding on the genie, and it is unintentionally hilarious, but yet, I don't know, it's 1940, so I don't expect it to, to look amazing. Um, yeah, I tried to give it some... Uh some some appreciation for you know they're, they're definitely doing a lot there's there's a lot in the genie's flight that is impressive in um what they're trying to accomplish in terms of scope and scale that's definitely impressive for yeah. the time but the genie's like a uh, little hitching run to go start flying and just kind of like launching <laughs> himself and kind of his body's kind of dangling down uh it is it is funny i mean i, I can't help it it is funny Right. Um, also, how about Abu just wanting some sausages while he's while he's out there with the genie? Like, 
he suddenly has this hankering for sausages and it's uh it, i don't know it was it's really very convenient to to they're like okay we need him to waste a wish all right what should he wish for uh, how about some sausages and it doesn't really make a lot of sense but it's uh it's funny yeah Kind of for for a character who is demonstrated to be clever and kind of um, um, cunning, he kind of two thirds of his wishes are either uh, uh, trolls or <laughs> or accidents. Like especially the last wish is <clears throat> is definitely an accident. But uh, I do like well, his uh, <clears throat> how he reverses the relationship with the genie of saying uh can i ask you one question like you were never really in that bottle were you and he's like <laughs> i'll prove it and then kind of turns the tables on him it's like you can come back but not not as loud as loud you frightened me before <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know to his credit even though he completely blows that first wish he really enjoys those sausages so maybe he, uh, yeah like he, he 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 finishes them off and i don't he doesn't really complain about it too much so um, spot on. So then we go to the uh, scene with the the all-seeing eye and the mountain, which is where um, we run into uh, the giant spider. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, yeah, this movie was made in 1940. This is what seven, eight, ten years before Lord of the Rings comes out. So it's, maybe this is even an inspiration for. For Shilob or Shalab, I don't know how to say that, but um, it's uh, I don't know. Large spiders have always been, uh, you know, one of uh, something in movies that makes me uncomfortable, and so. Uh, but I, I enjoyed it at the same time. But it's uh, I thought that that scene was really well done, and it was really thrilling, as well as watching him scale this large statue a la north by northwest like climbing along faces and whatnot mm-hmm. so um this is this is my favorite sequence of the movie is abu on this mission to uh, get this all seeing eye. yeah it's <clears throat> very little dialogue mostly physicality and creativity of achieving the the visuals and everything and you forgot to mention that if it is a giant spider there must be an even gianter octopus that takes care of that spider <laughs> That whatever doesn't get caught in the web, the octopus takes care of. <laughs> the octopus, uh, yeah. I guess, will look like a real octopus. So, <sighs> if it's not, that's incredible visuals. <laughs> they conjured that octopus up. I guess I, I guess I had not realized that he uses two thirds of his wishes basically as a taxi service for Ahmed. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, bring bring him out here. Okay, send him out back. <laughs> and the other one is so- a DoorDash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's Uber and DoorDash. Yeah, that's all it is. Uber and Uber Eats. Yeah, but um, I really like the. Uh, it, they, it's just great dungeon crawling, of going mm-hmm. through the different things, the different uh, textures, and the different obstacles he has. Um, <clears throat> for whatever reason, maybe it's just because I've played hundreds of hours of it. It kind of reminded me of Skyrim a little bit, <laughs> especially fighting giant spiders and. Uh, um, this is probably way too niche, but it reminded me of uh, stealing like the eyes of the Falmer statue. I don't know if you remember that from yeah, Skyrim. <clears throat> I, I, I did, yeah. and yes. You, they takes it out, and uh, I forget. In this movie, does everything start to crumble, or is that just Skyrim? <laughs> I don't think everything crumbles. No, no, you're right. Uh, but the 
the green people who are who have just been watching him just start worshiping him. That's the difference. Yeah. Um. I, I actually had that same thought when I was watching the movie. I, I thought this kind of feels. You know, we we had an early talky talk where we talked about video game movies and movies that feel like video games. And once this movie starts focusing on Abu. Uh, it kind of feels that way to me. It kind of feels like you're because he he goes into a level and there's uh, there's maybe a boss he has to fight or get past, and, and he, then he gains a sword, a right? <laughs> yeah, and so this is a uh, this kind of has that video game adventure feel to it, uh, which is which was really fun. Uh, you know, I think that uh, <laughs> the this is where I'll, I'll kind of mention the thing that I like best about the movie, which is for the first half. And I know I've already mentioned this a little bit, which is uh, the love story just bored me. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like the movie, the, the makers of the movie, it, it wouldn't surprise me if they filmed this in order. And they realized about halfway through this movie that there's not enough adventure and this isn't fun enough. And um, uh, what's his name? John Justin mm-hmm. uh, is uh, maybe not that compelling and they have a real star on their hands with Sabu. And so... Uh, it's it's almost like they said, well, the first half of this maybe isn't that great, but let's make the second half really fun. And so let's just make this an Abu movie now. <laughs> and they abandon uh, Ahmad uh, in in wherever he's waiting for uh, Abu to summon him, and it's an it's an Abu movie for for this point, and it's so much more fun. So it felt very meta to me when I was uh, watching the movie, sitting there thinking. I wish they'd do more with Abu, and then they just do more with Abu. So you're like, I am a director. I have power yes. over this movie. This is the original choose your own. This is the original Bandersnatch. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to imply. Um, um, I don't know about intent or the experience of this because I, the character, the actor Sabu, was a very young person when they filmed this. So I don't know if there's any kind of exploitation. That being said, you. It, I wonder if he was having fun climbing everything and doing all this stuff because it really comes through that he he yeah. is having fun doing all this stuff and I think it really ties up at the end that he just wants more fun and more adventure, which is why he's kind of it's his his plot when it diverges is just so much more thrilling because it's someone literally having fun, someone not just nineteen forties style um, chasing a woman because there's a woman to chase, you know. Right, right. Yeah, um, and I know that I, I, I would be curious to see how many other times he worked with Michael Powell because I know he's in Black Narcissus. Mm-hmm. He's the uh, he's the grown prince, uh, I think, in Black Narcissus that um, several of the nuns become infatuated with, I think. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, he's, he is... He is kind of the breakout star, and he breaks out right in the middle of the movie. It's it's like you see him go from wow, this guy has some real talent to you know filmmakers actually realizing, hey, let's make this guy the the star of his own vehicle in the middle of his movie. So I think that's it, that's it what really makes fun. the reversal so interesting. Is I would love to think that that's that's why they did it, but reversing him to be like the side character to then be the main hero, that even the our our white. Arabian prince is saying, "You're a. Hey, by the way, you were the hero the whole time." And we're like, "Yeah, he was." Yeah. 
Um, by the way, we should mention that this has the Blue Rose of Forgetfulness, which ties us to our last movie, Pan's Labyrinth, uh, which also had a Blue Rose, uh, which was tied to its previous, uh, to, to our previous movie, Die Hard, through uh, Watches. Um, so we're going to have to figure out how to tie the Thief of Baghdad in some way to our next movie, whatever that is. Yeah, and that's that's Chekhov's I'm, I'm going to be a gentleman. I could hurt you, but I won't uh, paying off there. Um <clears throat> Super icky payoff for, uh, I won't force you to love me, but I'm going to erase all of your memories. Like pretty, uh, pretty rough, um, pretty rough suitor stuff, Jafar. Yeah. All right. Carrying on. Uh, meanwhile, Ahmad appears in Jafar's palace and is quickly captured, but the sight of him restores the princess's memory. Uh, again, um, the Jafar, by the way, uh, never. I'll, I'll criticize Jafar in a minute. I was, I, I nearly broke this uh, just to just to criticize him. But uh, the furious usurper sentences them both to death. Abu, unwilling to watch further, shatters the all-seeing eye and is transported to the land of legend, where he is thanked by the old king for freeing its inhabitants. As a reward, he is given a magic crossbow and arrows, and is named the king's successor. To save Ahmad, however, Abu steals the king's magic flying carpet and rushes to Ahmad's rescue. So, uh, yeah, going back, we have Jafar having the princess inhale the fragrance of the blue rose of forgetfulness. Uh, And yet again, this is another bit of sorcery from Jafar that expires at the worst possible time for Jafar. So, like, she okay, she completely forgets everything, but there's one catch. If she sees him, she remembers everything. (laughs) So... This, yeah, this guy you refuse to keep blind may come back mad and still in love. <laughs> it's definitely a loose end. <laughs> Should have thought of that. Uh, but, uh, you know, my favorite bit of this, there, there's some swashbuckling at the palace and whatnot, and, uh, which, is, which is fun. But the, um, the, the best part here is the, uh, the land of legend, I think. Uh, because we, we get to see Abu's interactions with uh, his... I don't know the old king and uh, he getting to see the uh, the magic carpet, which is I love the way it's filmed because that thing is so present in the scene even before it becomes um, even before you know what it is or at least that it's confirmed that it's a flying carpet mm-hmm. because it's it's lit just like it catches your eye. And I remember watching that scene being like, that's a flying carpet, right? That's got to be a flying carpet. <laughs> As he like walked around it and was in front of it. And I was like, yeah, it's... come on, come on, fly on that carpet. This has to be a part of this. <laughs> I mean, there's no way Aladdin came up with that on its own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but yeah, Abu has uh, given some crossbows and uh, heads off to the rescue. Uh, I'm just going to carry through and, and finish the plot here sure. and then we can wrap up. Uh, Abu's aerial arrival in Baghdad, which fulfills a prophecy cited a few times during the course of the film, sparks a revolt against Jafar. Abu saves Ahmad, then kills the fleeing Jafar with his crossbow. However, when Abu hears Ahmad telling the people of his plan to send Abu to school to train to become his new grand vizier, Abu flies away on the carpet to find fun and adventure. The end. So, uh, so David, how did you how did you like the end of this movie? <clears throat> It was uh, 
it was the the perfect ending for our hero abu to be the hero he gets the crossbow yes. of justice and uh as one of his final cons he cons uh either the king or he cons allah saying like where when the kind king is going he won't want the carpet he'll want allah to take him by the hand personally he may be conning the carpet itself to start start flying and let him take it just a uh master class in in thieving and uh um yeah confidence mannery right there i also like how he's kind of justifying it to himself mm-hmm. like he doesn't want, he doesn't want to steal the carpet but he needs to and so he's like how can i justify this well he's not gonna he's not gonna want that carpet it's hardly even stealing if you think about it right and then uh yeah abu with his uh his crossbow of justice and with the powder keg of the people you know i think movie does a pretty good job of uh it's it never goes that deep on what it's uh what it's talking about but it does a pretty good job of panning through the crowd and you see the face of disgruntled people people who are unhappy uh, but people who feel that they are powerless to stop something and they're kind of waiting for someone to do something about this injustice that's happening and then uh abu flies through the sky with a crossbow of justice and uh (laughs) man he's a great shot (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just <laughs> he is a, a really good shot. Just no scope abu <laughs> either that or that crossbow really is pretty awesome yeah that's true maybe it just has some some auto targeting on it uh and then we see that now that uh, i mean it's a headshot right doesn't he hit him like right in the forehead yeah, I think it's right between the eyes or right in the the meat of the forehead it's pretty pretty good <laughs> kill shot <laughs> And such an unceremonious end to Jafar. I mean, Jafar's just flying away and then just gets a, you know, a headshot to end it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then as Jafar dies, the uh, you can the sorcery that was keeping the horse together uh, <laughs> crumbles and all the horse parts are fall and plummet to the ground, mm-hmm. which probably led to some very confused uh, folks in the streets. <laughs> yeah, true. Of Baghdad. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, lo- I love it and I love the way that Abu shrugs off the uh the plan for abu at the end which is and i, and I love the ending of this movie it's such a a fun adventure ending which is just you know hell no i don't want to go to school i want to go have fun i want to go do more adventures yeah i, I would see thief of baghdad too to see what his next adventure was i'm, I'm sad there wasn't another one because <clears throat> yeah. i think that could have been a lot of fun not having prince ahmed in it and uh it's a it's a really fun send up of the, um, you know, he's going to, he's going to be a savior and, uh, teach this, uh, our character whose physicality and like boyishness we love. He's going to teach him how to be a proper person. He's like, you got what you wanted. It's time for what I want. And he's now the author of his own destiny. I think it's a, it's a great ending to a movie. That's a little, uh, muddled here and there. How about you? Sure. Did you like it? Uh, I'm feeling you probably, like what happened with our Abu? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is I. I wanted to go along with him. Mm-hmm. I feel like a, a possibly even more fun movie is about to take place in his life that we just don't have uh, available to us. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So. Uh, so. Let's talk uh, themes of this movie. And uh, I'll be honest, I really didn't pick up many when I was watching uh, myself. Just it just felt like too kind of. It, it felt rather slight to me and it kind of just felt like this, we're just here to have some fun and mostly show off our Technicolor, uh, you know, camera tricks. Um, 
but uh but what did you what did you think about this yeah um <clears throat> not not too much deep to really pull anything out is really just active um trying to make a puzzle out of something that's not a puzzle you know cutting something into a jigsaw that is just a picture uh, there's probably a little bit of uh i think i i was trying to just put some um, research papers in here for topics, but like definitely <laughs> masters and servitude and that flip flopping, I think is, is in there and who is a master, who is a servant and what does it, what does it mean to move between those two? There's a lot of, mm-hmm. there's royalty and there's peasants and there are wizards and there are people who don't have powers and there's power exerted and power that's taken that's in it, but kind of just in a generic adventure movie sense of it's kind of just mm-hmm. it's just i don't know it's just there i don't think it, it's saying too much other than i do think it's a little it's probably a little progressive for the time in 1940 for the uh, uh a um <clears throat> i'm i'm guessing ethnically appropriate casted person to become the hero of the movie amongst um kind of white actors that were names and were, you know, playing as that culture. Uh, I think you see that a lot in this era and even after this movie is, you know, in a a normal movie, Abu would be a servant who is like uh, probably the most fun of the movie, but the, the, the character who's got a white last name ends up being the hero. It's, it's just a, uh, it's a it's a relic of a troubled past with these movies dabbling in cultures that they don't really belong to, like these English directors taking the uh, Thousand and One Arabian Nights and playing with it. So I think that's that's a little progressive for what they did with that character. Um, I I have not seen the nineteen twenty four version. I don't know how close it hues to to what that one did. Well, they're the. I know that they're the same character going on. Yeah, and uh, that that's kind of. You can kind of see it here and there. If you wanted to write a, a research paper about it, you could probably have some fun with it. But it's mainly just an adventure story. There's some th- stuff about not... time, like prophecy and how time works that people don't deserve to know time. You know, I'm gonna love you until the end of time. There's beginning in times of end of times, but I think it's. It's kind of just some mystical dressing to a normal adventure movie. It kind of just sounds poetic without having much poetry to it. I don't know if that makes sense. So uh, it's Douglas Fairbanks in The Thief of Baghdad in 1924, and he plays Ahmed, the Thief of Baghdad. So there is no Abu. Mm-hmm. And so it's definitely definitely the uh, the, the white man getting the, the glory in that one. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting bit of of change then in writing then that they're pulling out this this character to be the hero and you know the the prince who was promised would normally fulfill the the prophecy. So why do you think they created the character of Abu for this movie? Um, um, given that it's a remake, and and I I, I asked this with because I I read um, and I don't know if he knew it or if he was speculating, but Roger Ebert had a good. Uh, um, had a good theory, but I, I'm curious if you know why first. Well, my pithy answer would be because they knew what Justin was capable of. <laughs> it's like we need to farm <laughs> some of this out to somebody else. <laughs> like, like maybe they started shooting and uh, this, this isn't going to work. <laughs> this guy cannot climb a spider web or hold a sword. <laughs> like it does not look yeah. convincing. 
Um, I I don't know uh, if if you have a, a theory or you have you have something. I say shoot. Well, like shoot I said, for it's it. Ebert's. It's it's Ebert's theory, but his theory was that they uh there there wouldn't be this was a this was now a talkie and there wouldn't be anybody for him to talk to. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if if they didn't make it kind of a buddy film. Yeah, that that seems practical. And Occam's Razor, you know, that seems probably most likely. I thought you were going to say Ebert had this like a uh, you know, elaborate theory yeah. about it, but that that makes a ton of sense. A lot of it would just be uh, Prince Ahmed talking to himself in a boat or in a desert or on an <laughs> island, and that would have been just drudgery. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I think you 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 definitely convinced me on the the masters and servitude and uh, the uh, I think you make a really good point about this being progressive in that it lets a person of color um, kind of walk away as the the big hero at the end of a you know amongst a cast of, of white people, which is still something that uh, movies don't really do a good job of today. <laughs> No, <clears throat> and there's still, despite having that, there's you know this movie is all about duality. Like there's good, bad. There's masters and servants. There's magic and mechan mechanics. I don't know. That's also magic, but it it has that. But it's also <clears throat> it's also culturally icky, you know, for for a good bit of it. The main character and uh, Jafar. There's a lot of stereotyping of of this region. Um. So, I don't know. I'd, I'd highlight that point, but I probably wouldn't say that this is a, a great example of being a, a 1940 woke film. You know what I mean? Yeah. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's move on, if you're ready, to the uh, to the Oscar talk. Sure. Um, Always All right. Ready. So, this was, nominated, this was nominated for four Oscars at the 1940 Academy Awards. Uh, where uh, Rebecca won Best Picture. Uh, you also had The Grapes of Wrath, Philadelphia Story, The Great Dictator uh, among the nominees. Um, so the first award we'll hit is Best Cinematography, um, Best Cinematography, Best Color Cinematography, because the award was split back then. And uh, well, for good reason, when <laughs> when there are movies operating with, uh, with, with you know, a, a huge technological advantage to other movies, it's probably unfair. <laughs> Um, probably like that, but that's the nomin- cheating. They're using color, <clears throat> whereas nowadays, if a film comes out in black and white, and it's like, oh well, they're going to get cinematography or something. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, okay, so the nominees were uh, "The Thief of Baghdad," uh, "Bittersweet," "Down Argentine Way," mm-hmm. "Northwest Mounted Police," mm-hmm. "Northwest Passage," and "The Blue Bird." Um, I have not seen any of the other nominees in this uh, field. I'll do you one better. I don't think I've heard of any of these other nominees either. <laughs> I'll admit either. that. Um, so, yeah, I can. So, since we can't really talk about the other nominees, uh, did you? Does this strike you as a movie that, you know, not knowing anything about it, you would think this probably should have won Best Cinematography for 1940? Yeah. I think it's it's it does a great job of selling the grandeur and scope and especially the vibrant color really in the early days of color really making the most out of it. Um, you still have Powell and you have a lot of uh, acclaimed filmmaking behind, you know, a simple adventure story. So a lot of the panoramas that are 
practical and are simulated are are pretty impressive at conveying the grandeur of what's happening. Um, there's the mechanical horse that is, you know, green screening across a matte sky, but there's also the palace is is suitably probably on a soundstage, but it's grand. The uh, temple we're getting the all-seeing eye is is also grand. I think it does a great job of uh, mm-hmm. a lot of times framing a really big world and picture with our small characters in it um kind of highlighting it's it it, you know it's kind of a fairy tale and we have our almost like our action figures playing in this little world it's 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 uh it even now i think it's still pretty impressive i do too i think there are two types of cinematography that that impress me there is the you know, artful cinematography. And I don't think there's a lot of that in this movie. I don't necessarily think of about the way, uh, you know, camera, camera angles or shots are established or anything like that. But then there's the aspect of, I'm really impressed by what I'm seeing on the screen right now. Mm-hmm. Just, I'm impressed that this exists. And I think this uh, movie kind of knocks it out of the park for 1940 in that respect. Yeah. Um, so it, it does strike me as the kind of movie which I would I would expect to, and and I wonder if I, I kind of have a suspicion that these other um, that that some of these other nominees are kind of in that same boat that they may not be. I wonder if there's there was more of a split back then between sort of dramatic, artful cinematography and uh, you know wowing viewers in the theater cinematography, and I wonder if. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if movies like Northwest Mounted Police uh, was more in the latter category alongside The Thief of Baghdad. And um, you have movies like uh, Rebecca in the in the black and white category. Um, a different kind of cinematography and the way I think about it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, So yeah, The Thief of Baghdad did win. And then it uh, was also nominated and won for Best Art Direction. Against Bittersweet, <laughs> Down Argentine Way, and Northwest Mounted Police. Yeah. So, the losses um, keep mounting for Northwest Mounted Police. <laughs> yeah, at least uh, Northwest Passage was spared the indignity <laughs> in this category. Um, the uh, Again, this is similar to Pan's Labyrinth for me, where I think the cinematography and the art direction go hand in hand a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is a movie where the art direction is um, the cinematography is impressive with some of the tricks they pull, but I think the the visual, just the look and feel of the movie, I chalk up to the art direction, which is uh, which is really impressive, which was done by Vincent Corda, uh, another Corda involved in this movie. Yeah, there, there's great cinematography in <clears throat> movies like Roma, where they can make uh, an apartment or just a street look grand. And there's, I agree, this kind of movie where cinematography goes hand in hand with art direction of you're really awarding the world that uh, you're kind of capturing there. And those sets are very impressive um, that they that they built for the movie. Um, even today, they, they see it, they're still pretty impressive, and they help you sus- sustain your uh, or suspend your your disbelief of, you know, just actors on a soundstage somewhere. The one thing that I did connect the, the one way I did connect this movie to Black Narcissus beyond Sabu is uh, uh, matte paintings, which uh, I believe is a uh, is a staple of the Archers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, landscapes and, and backgrounds, and they're very beautiful and well done. And I, I noticed that and in the thief of Baghdad as well. Um, 
So it was also nominated for um, best effects or special effects uh, in a. Uh, this is back in the era of the, the Oscars nominating uh, lots of movies for uh, some categories. <laughs> and uh, so this won best effects uh, against Boomtown, Doctor Psych. Now, David, you you put these uh, you put this list together on this you. Uh, there's a possibility. I, I have a suspicion that you made up movies for this. Um, and Dr. Cyclops is the uh, root of my suspicion. <laughs> that David is just making me say uh, movies that do not exist. Uh, I, if I had to pick the fake ones out of this set, I'm going to go with Boomtown, Dr. Cyclops, Women in War, and... Uh, the boys from Syracuse. Those are the ones that I think you made up. Uh, we also have foreign correspondent, one million BC, Rebecca, Swiss Family Robinson, uh, the Blue Bird, the Invisible Man Returns, the Long Voyage Home, the Seahawk, and Typhoon. All nominated for the best special effects. I actually made up one, but it was Rebecca. It was not nominated for it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. All of these are the actual nominees. I didn't. I didn't think that uh, that far ahead that it would be. Well, Really I just love that Dr. Cyclops is now in our bank of possible movies we may have to watch at some point. <laughs> it could come up. It's an Oscar-nominated film. So, <clears throat> once again, kind of going hand-in-hand hand with cinematography is uh, the special effects in this movie, which understandably probably blew people away in 1940. Yeah, it's probably worth... Uh... It's definitely a legacy of this movie going into Lawrence Butler's kind of creation that happened with this movie. Um, Because I I don't really know what the rest of these movies are to really say if if it's better or not. We said the special effects are pretty impressive, but Larry Butler, the special effects guy on this movie, literally invented green screen. The thing we all know (laughs) for this movie, the chroma key process. If you look up green screen, it mentions this movie was the first movie for it to happen. I mean probably with an asterisk or with a tilde or some kind of punctuation that someone could maybe dispute that somewhere. But before this, it is mostly matte paintings that they would move on sound stages. And uh, they were able to have, uh, you know, green screens shoot something that could be the background for something. And it could be a filmed segment that they could um, put together later new backgrounds characters in the foreground or background um that's kind of interesting that uh, the thing that you could probably do on your phone now or people do in zoom meetings at work it came <laughs> from this movie which is quite a legacy so for that alone definitely yeah. deserves uh probably a ton of oscars for its special effects yeah i was looking i, I was curious if our if our video call had uh at any background effects. <laughs> oh, there I am in some uh, crazy, what, like Google office or something? <laughs> I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, so yeah, I had to in honor of the Thief of Baghdad. But yeah, it's, uh, I mean, when they if, when they invent new <laughs> technology for a movie, and uh, yeah, it makes sense to give it a, a special effects Oscar. Yeah. And we still use it today. <laughs> right, 80 Which years later. That's, that's pretty impressive legacy. Um. Yeah, I've only seen Rebecca. I think out of this uh, nominee list, and and considering I can't tell you any of the effects from Rebecca, other than they they you know burned down a house, then uh yeah this is uh this this wins. 
Yeah. In in uh, Talkie Talk, we talked about Rebecca before. I think it's entirely the fire at the end. Like a spoiler alert for Rebecca, <laughs> if you haven't seen that movie. But <clears throat> I think that was the special effect that got the the, the nomination there. Uh, the final nomination, which is the only thing the Thief of Baghdad did not win for, is uh, Best Original Score. Uh, Miklos Rosa with the first ever British score to be nominated in this category. It was nominated against Arizona, Dark Command, My Favorite <laughs> Wife, Northwest Mounted Police, uh, One Million BC, Our Town, Pinocchio, Rebecca, The Fight for Life, The Great Dictator, The House of Seven Gables, The Howards of Virginia, The Letter, The Long Voyage Home, The Mark of Zorro, and Waterloo Bridge. Man, if they did like uh, the... They had the orchestra at this ceremony play like a montage of uh, bits from the, all the scores. This one, this ceremony would have lasted like nine hours or something. Um, <laughs> or just clips from each movie. I mean, like the special effects thing is some 15 movies. Yeah. Uh, Pinocchio won, which uh, is not surprising. I think it was the, maybe the first Disney movie to win uh, best score. Uh, potentially. It may be the first disney movie to be nominated for something that wasn't a special award like a special <clears throat> recognition award um i don't know I'm, I'm putting that out there i haven't uh i i cannot confirm nor deny that but i think the biggest <laughs> takeaway here is just another loss for northwest mounted police <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> they they traveled all the way from you know the far reaches of canada <laughs> to, to attend this ceremony and then to be shut out is uh it has to be frustrating mm-hmm. at least i'm guessing they were shut out um no uh so uh did you notice uh, did you take note of the score of uh the thief of baghdad not because re- really. I, I didn't yeah, it's not really memorable i think the only time i noticed it is when it's like super cheesy where something's funny and then it, it does that thing old movies do where it's like obviously like clompy clompy clomp kind of music, you know? <laughs> or something like a, a love scene is just, just syrupy strings and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I probably wouldn't have awarded it or, or nominated it, but um, Pinocchio makes a lot of sense here. I don't really remember a lot of the Miklos Rosa mu- music here. Mm-mm. Were there any... Uh... Any categories where you thought it maybe could have earned a nomination where it did not? Um, I'll just say for my my love of the character and the actor and physicality brought to it, I'd do Best Supporting Actor for Sabu. <clears throat> yeah. Could it be some early category fraud? You know, maybe he should have been in lead, but um, yeah, I thought he was great. Yeah, and I don't really know what the field looks like, but I could also see something for Conrad Vate as well. Um, it wouldn't have wouldn't have surprised me. Then again, I don't really think either one was really, uh, you know, shafted by the Oscars here. But um, yeah, it, I, I could see that mm-hmm. as well. Um, it is worth mentioning that uh, The Thief of Baghdad was the big winner on Oscar night. It won three trophies, which was the most of any film in 1940. <laughs> uh, making it the rare movie to win the most uh, the most Oscars of the night and not even garner a nomination for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Also, three has to be among the lowest for um, the lowest number of statues for the, the, the night's biggest winner, right? <laughs> right, especially with a lot of the <clears throat> categories split in two. I mean, there's black and white cinematography, black and white 
art direction, black and white costume design. I guess you couldn't have won both <laughs> unless you're, uh, I don't know, if you're a uh, Wizard of Oz and you're really cheating. <laughs> so, like, uh, Rebecca won Best Picture, but Rebecca, did it only win, did it win anything else besides Best Picture? Uh, Rebecca won in, did it win Best Director? I don't think it did. I think uh, John Huston won for Grapes of Wrath uh that year uh rebecca won cinematography black and white which which makes a lot of sense it's a it's a it's kind of the classic cinematography um winner for that black and white really focused on the mansion Mm -hmm. um kind of scanning yeah hitchcock lost to uh john ford for grapes of wrath Philadelphia story picked up two wins. Uh, Pinocchio won another award too. So, um, but yeah, this is uh, definitely not the movie I would uh, expect to be the biggest Oscar winner of 1940, but uh, it was. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, all right. So uh, the final thoughts, uh, we'll, we'll circle back to the, the cast now. Um, any any thoughts you have on the anybody from this cast you want to point out or highlight as uh, that we haven't already? No, I think we, we kind of hit on it. Uh, Conrad Vate as Jafar is is fun. John, Justin, Justin John. I don't even know what his real name is. He's he's pretty forgettable. He is as interesting as his name. <laughs> it's like a generic uh, like playing NCAA football when you do like auto name. That's one of those names, like John Justin's won the Heisman. Like, who was that again? Oh, he's number four. Right. Um, Sabu's great. The princess is forgettable. Um, the the G- Rex Ingram yeah. is really fun. He's he's definitely having a lot of fun in that. Um, but not too much else to to speak of there for me. So uh, normally this is a simpler section <laughs> uh, when we talk about directors, but. Uh, this movie is credited as having three directors, um, Ludwig Berger, Tim Whelan, and Michael Powell. Um, however, there, there, there's like even more people. There's another Corda brother mm-hmm. who, uh, other than the set decor or the set designer and the producer, there's also Zoltan Corda who, uh, apparently did some, did some shooting. There's William Cameron Menzies who, uh, was, possibly a director for, I don't know, a minute or two. And, uh, um, this, this has like all the, the hallmarks of, uh, what they would call a troubled shoot <laughs> or a, uh, uh, because you know, when you have five, six directors, that's, uh, it might explain why this feels, even though they're the same set of characters, it feels almost like a, uh, like a movie of vignettes, mm-hmm. like small little short, sections that kind of feel different from the others um and that might be a reason why but uh yeah i think anything you want to there's been some adaptations of thousand and one arabian nights or scheherazade or or other things where they take that approach where it's a bunch of short stories and the overall scheherazade story you know all these uh stories to impress a sultan you know that that classic story it kind of works better that way it makes so much sense that there are five directors and some of which wanted to make it a musical. I think the original filmmaker wanted to make it a small scale, intimate story with like just prints on that. And the, and the thing is like, yeah, that's not working. There's the adventure thing. That's really sings. There's, there's like comedy. It's kind of all over the place. And it definitely 
feels that way. So it, yeah. it really unsurprising. Um, yeah, and <clears throat> Michael Powell was the second director brought here, which is, I think, why he's not with Emmerich Pressburger. His, it was originally Ludwig, Ludwig Berger, and then, uh, yeah, Corda brought his buddy on to help shoot some scenes, and then he eventually kind of took it over. Not that that would happen I nowadays do, in a Star Wars or a Marvel movie or anything. <laughs> I do like that uh, they, uh, in 1940, they moved the production to Hollywood where they had to reshoot scenes because Sabu had grown three inches <laughs> over the course of the movie. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so let's focus. Do you, do you want to discuss any director other than Michael Powell here? Um, <clears throat> Michael Powell is the most notable here. The other, the other director. I can tell have, you where they rank. <laughs> yeah. The other, all of them. Well, that might be interesting, but the other, the other directors don't really have much beyond. Like this is definitely their most famous movie. I think uh, one of the directors has a baseball movie, maybe not Pride of the Yankees, but something like that. Um, but beyond that, like uh, I don't know what else Ludwig Berger has to really talk about. There's a lot of stuff that is in his native German, and then other th- things that is kind of work for hire. Um, Tim Whelan. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really know enough about the other guys to really go through their chronology. Yeah, uh, Ludwig Berger has uh, only two movies that has had enough had enough viewers to have uh, letterbox scores, and this is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim Whelan has ten films uh, with an average score of three point two or so, and uh, so he's not even in the top thousand directors in this database. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, uh, Powell's obviously a, a big name, and then we have uh, Menzies. I think is also outside the top thousand. Um, Zoltan Korda is in here somewhere. Um, what is his rank? Um, we have actually both the Cordas. Zoltan Korda is ranked number nine hundred and twenty-six. He actually directed thirteen films in his career. Uh, and I don't even think I credit him for this. This is I only really list I only assigned this to the to the main three, mm-hmm. um, and then not not credited at all as a director here. Alexander Korda, though, but kind of maybe a, a unifying visionary on this film. Korda is ranked in the top seven hundred directors of all time. Hmm. So he is uh, he he had he he was a director for ten films, um, not including this. So. Uh, Anyway, so um, but Michael Powell is the big name here. Where um, where do you rank this kind of in your in your Archers and Powell uh, among what you've seen? <clears throat> they they have a ton of movies together, so I've really I have started watching their movies kind of from the top down. Like I've seen Red Shoes, Black Narcissus, Matter of Life and Death. Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. I've uh, I've started but haven't finished Canterbury Tale, and same with uh, Peeping Tom is kind of his movie. That's another left field thing. It's kind of a serial killer movie that's uh, supposed to be ahead of its time. I haven't uh, I've started but haven't finished it. So of of the ones I've seen, it's uh, it's at the bottom. But that makes sense. It's not a director that. Is it's not like a Spielberg where you grew up watching his movies. If you're kind of of our direct generation, you have to seek him out. So, 
Unless you're mm-hmm. like a uh, a Brent and you go chronologically through everybody <laughs> in an effort to... Or, or alphabetically. Or alphabetically, yeah. <laughs> um, then, uh, yeah, this this would probably... It's uh, along the lines of... Uh, I think it's the same letterbox score as like 49th Parallel. That's one of their ones that got a best... Uh, uh, best oct- best Picture nomination. But really, um, propaganda e-movie so mm-hmm. i would probably put it near the bottom but it's only because i've i've kind of started from the <laughs> i've backed myself into a drake lyric there <laughs> where the bottom was started from the top <clears throat> so of of the yeah. archer movies i've seen and this is a one-off pal movie i put it at the bottom but there's still a lot to recommend it by how about yourself what's your exposure here to archers and Again, it's just uh, it's Black Narcissus in this, and Black Narcissus is is an easy one for me in my my pile of rankings. Uh, and this is this is number two. But again, I, I'm I'm the same as you. It's not really a, a, a slight on this film as much as I just haven't seen a lot, and um, I'm I, I was more blown away by what I what I saw outside of this. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, getting to one of your favorite sections, which is uh, spreadsheet silliness here. Um, what uh, where, do you have any guesses on where you think Michael Powell ranks in my in my database? From what I've learned so far, <clears throat> um, he definitely has a lot a lot of movies, which helps him. And not all of them are great, but there's a lot of them that are in the the three plus four plus range. So I'm going to take a stab mm-hmm. that he's like uh, seventy five. Uh, this is the this is the first director where you've underrated. Mm. He is uh he's ranked 39th in oh. in the rankings right now. So uh, yeah, he's uh his <clears throat> he has uh, 26 films that he is accredited director on with an average score of 3.5, and uh, he does have um like you said uh, you you've listed in the uh, in our show notes here that um like. Yeah, he's got movies that are really. I think. I think in terms of looking at letterbox scores, which I have to have looked at more movies letterbox scores than any human on earth. I have to assume <laughs> because I've looked at eight, like eighteen thousand different movies on letterbox uh, over like two years. Um, the average is about three point two. Um, I think a decent movie tends to be from three point two to three point six or so, and then once you get to three seven, you're starting to get into movies that I think are reliably good. Like I, I feel pretty good about my chances of liking a movie once it's there, um, and then once a movie is beyond four, I, I think it's going to be very good. And then if it's above four point, if it's four point two or greater, I think then at that point you're hitting like really. Very few people are having problems with this movie, mm-hmm. and most people are, are finding it great. And you look at his his movies, and The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp is a four point two, Matter of Life and Death is a four point two, Black Narcissus is four, The Red Shoes is four point three, and uh, that's a rarefied error for uh, for uh, Peeping Tom's a four. So yeah, Powell has uh, churned out a lot of uh, apparently very very good movies. So um, it seems like a it does not seem like a uh, placement on this list that that I look at and I think, oh, really him? Um, in fact, they Michael Powell is my number one ranked director of the 1940s. Hmm. 
He is the highest scoring. They are the highest scoring in the 1940s. Uh, and I don't have Pressburger on here because um, my rule is that uh, I don't list directors if they were part of a directing team and they never worked outside that duo mm-hmm. or, or, or outside that team. And while Powell did, Pressburger did not. So uh, Powell's the only one in here, but they, they mostly go hand in hand. Um, but yeah, Powell's the, uh, they, I've got Powell and Pressburger as, as number one in the forties, which is, uh, which is interesting. Cause they're not, a, they're, they're not directors. I really had ever really heard a ton about growing up until I got a little deeper into, um, deeper into this. You've seen more movies of theirs. Is there a, uh, is there an aesthetic or a, a thing that you would, that, that you think of when you think of the archers? <laughs> <clears throat> besides this movie it's, it's like britishness <laughs> is what i define okay. it about it's defining nationality and uh um patriotism and love of country and really examining that and examining the the english culture in a real pointed and i guess i don't know if this as much applies to narcissus but really takes shot at <clears throat> conventions and satirizes people who are in power and bureaucracy uh pretty well um you see that a lot in matter of life and death essentially it makes it's the one of the earlier movies to make heaven a bureaucracy where you gotta you know form cues and punch tickets and do stuff life and death and colonel blimp like it's a lifetime military man looking back on his life and despite being released like in the middle of world war ii it's very critical um kind of reading between the lines of some of the stodginess and stiff upper lipness of what England kind of takes for granted about its own reputation. Um, and, uh, I don't know. Red shoes is just a magical fantasia. <laughs> There's some things that kind of just are not like that. And it's, uh, that's the one I probably recommend. It's my favorite of theirs that I've seen. And it's, it's a easy five star for me. So it's it, that'd be a through line of a lot of their movies, and then some movies have nothing to do with that. <laughs> well, it sounds like that this movie is not a good uh, even even though it's a even though we like the movie, and even if it is even if you think it's a good movie or a really good movie or whatever, then it, it doesn't seem like it's a particularly representative movie of the uh, the the Powell experience at least. Um, it kind of it's I would compare it like hey what's a good uh, what's a what's a very David Fincher movie ah, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button of course <laughs> yeah if, <laughs> kinda, if you go in kind of feels like that yeah, if you go in Black Narcissus thinking the convent on the mountain is gonna have a all seeing eye on it it does not <laughs> just say that a lot less spiders than you'd think in the rest of their movies <laughs> yeah um, okay well. That was uh, that, that was fun. So, um, any any final thoughts on the Thief of Baghdad? It's it's legacy. Um, it's uh, d- does Disney owe some money to the 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 estate of the the uh, um, uh, what what uh, what's the the producer's name? Corda. Um, Corda, yeah, the, the Corda estate. Yeah, probably. Maybe this movie lapsed into the, the public domain just briefly, and that's when they wrote Aladdin. That's the only <laughs> way I can explain that not everybody is talking about this. Um, you, you touched on the, the, the big impact um, of it. In a lot of movies we've seen, there's kind of they kind of lift 
the Raiders Raiders uh, connections pretty pretty spot on there and you know like, like we said I think the the directors that we grew up watching I think they watched movies like this and this one's a pretty good example yeah. of how to pull it off visually pretty impressively if the uh, you know it's a little disjointed which makes sense from how it was made I'd probably say that's the 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 big takeaway from this movie and just I can't believe this is where green screen came from it was fun I've had I known that I would have checked this movie out a long time ago just to just to know that you know this is the the green screen movie but um uh, I see that you have here in our uh, in our notes of the thief of Baghdad's legacy you have the Prince of Persia do you th- is this a, do you think it's a, a big effect on that the video game franchise um yeah I think so Prince of Persia I, I believe does that predate Aladdin the, my PC gaming uh, history I'm not ooh. totally sure I think I think that was late 80s maybe or early 90s it's probably pretty close but uh, that's what was in the wikipedia article but essentially if you're kind of taking from this culture and this touch point of 1001 arabian nights um then you're i was trying to find the answer answer for you david but uh as i typed in prince of persia Wikipedia took me to Prince of Perversion, <laughs> who is apparently a wrestler. Ah. Well, that's one of the uh, better places to go with that kind of title. It could have taken you other places. So I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, so yeah, I, I think, it, you know, I, I would just wrap up by saying a good, fun movie that uh, maybe it didn't blow me away. I don't know that it's a must-see movie for everyone, but if you like a lot of, you know, like Indiana Jones-type movies, you can um, appreciate where uh, it, you know, gets some of its influence from and still have a pretty fun time mm-hmm. uh, through a good 60% of this movie. Yeah, but that's a good point. Uh, a lot of the movies we're probably going to come up against here are going to be interesting historical artifacts, and this is an artifact mm-hmm. that is still fun, which kind of yeah. is, uh, you know, if that sounds interesting, that should be recommendation enough to see where some some legacy came from and, uh, I don't know, have a little bit of fun when you're doing some homework on these old movies. So now we have to answer one more question, and that's what's the next podcast going to be about? What movie are we going to hit next? Uh, and we're going for our most recent movie, this is a 2019 movie that was nominated for a single Academy Award, and it lost. Hmm. Based on that alone, and other than, I, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I believe you enjoyed this movie. Um, let's see if there is, oh yes, you, you very much enjoyed this movie, David. So hmm. uh, I found your letterbox score, you're a big fan. Um, I'm a big fan. It was on my top 10. I have to imagine it was one of your top 10 movies as well for 2019. Um, And I will say there's a bit, even though it was not selected for this purpose, there is a bit of a topical nature to, uh, to the selection. Mm -hmm. And does it also contain a blue rose of some kind? (laughs) Oh gosh. I I don't know. What, what, what? (laughs) No, I, 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 my mind's drawing a blank, but I just think it would be impressive if we keep pulling that out of it. Right. Uh, um, single single Oscar. Um, and a lot of animated stuff is single Oscar. Documentary stuff is single Oscar. Um, could be score. 
I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. What we got? Okay, this has some plot elements that are very similar to The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in that uh, this is a film where Mm. Daniel Craig travels to a mansion owned by Christopher Plummer (laughs) and investigates his family (laughs) (laughs) in a film directed by a director who has uh, ties to major uh, sci-fi franchises. That's right. We're watching Joker. I have to credit uh, Dave Chen for that. I think he made a letterboxed list of that is specifically that. <laughs> movies where Daniel Craig, so-and-so. Uh, but no, we are watching Knives Out, uh, which I think uh, is a, just an eminently rewatchable movie. And um, we're going to talk about Knives Out next time on Here Are the Nominees. So you, you excited? Uh, very excited. Uh, I think when the Academy Awards happened, that's one that I hadn't seen yet. Um, I was kind of late to the game. Um, it didn't make my list when we did year-end list, but I just hadn't seen it yet. And since then, I think mm. I've seen it once or twice, maybe twice now. And it's just a, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I That is not homework going and watching that movie. That movie is instantly in the rewatchable canon. I've I've almost just watched that movie in the last few weeks. Uh, just just I came very close to just watching it, and then I thought I don't really need to watch this right now. I can almost play it in my head. Uh, it's it's such a fun movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm um, I'm looking forward to watching it. It's on Amazon Prime, uh, and uh, yeah, with uh, Christopher Plummer's passing, I figured it would be oh, yeah. it would be nice to uh, to work in a movie there. Mm-hmm. So uh, all right, well until next time, go watch Knives Out and. Uh, and we will, we will talk about that next time on Here Are the Nominees. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts and all the other podcatching apps of your choice. Uh, you can check out the website at themediabyus.com and check out our Facebook groups at Games By Us, Movies By Us, and TV By Us. Uh, is there any part of that outro that I forgot, David, because I just started doing it without thinking <laughs> I think there there's a Twitter at the media by us and a Gmail oh, yeah. media by us at gmail.com if you want to use any of those methods. Send an email into what has to be the dustiest, most forgotten email uh, inbox on the internet. We still have a promise. We um, return every email we will ever get. <laughs> it's pretty easy to keep that promise for yeah. now. Um, all right, well... Thank you for joining me and uh, and, and yeah, until next time, thanks for listening. Bye everybody. Bye.